I preached my very first sermon back in the 1990s, my very first Christmas Eve sermon back in the 1990s. There were only two things wrong with it, what I said and how I said it. <laughs> the next year, I, I tried a, another attempt, and it was equally as bad. And so for my third Christmas Eve sermon ever, I decided I'm going to intellectually and theologically explain the meaning of the Christ event. I used words like that, too. In fact, in the sermon, I said, I want you to understand tonight the hermeneutical, exegetical, and theological reasons behind the ontological understanding of this eschatological story in its original context. I actually used those words. And I'm, amen, thank you, yes. I knew this was the right church for that sermon. Well, I'm pretty sure of the 600 people who were packed into that little church that night, not a single one of them understood it, including me. Well, it was about 12.15 on Christmas Eve morning. We snuffed the candles. The facilities folks and I locked the doors. I found Julie and our two very tired boys, Stephen and Nate, who were very little back then, and we made our way home. After we tucked the boys in bed, Julie and I sat down in the living room next to the Christmas tree for a quiet moment. And she looked at me and she said, well, what did you think of the sermon? <laughs> this was Julie's way of saying, you know it was terrible, don't you? And I said, it was terrible. And she said, may I give you some advice? And it wasn't a question. <laughs> yes, please. She said, when people come to church on Christmas Eve, they want to believe. They're not looking for explanations. They're not wanting to hear an argument. They want to experience something of hope. They want to believe that somewhere in the world there's a light shining in the darkness, no matter how ugly it all seems, that somehow hope cannot be extinguished. That's what they want. That was the Christmas Eve sermon I should have preached. She's so right. It's a beautiful word. People don't come wanting theological explanation. They come wanting to know that somehow, some way, this ancient story from so long ago actually is true. True in its truest sense. True in a way that speaks to our hearts. True in a way that, that speaks to our souls. That invites us to let love come in. No one comes to Christmas Eve anxious for a lecture. We come looking for a word of hope and a reminder of the goodness of the grace of God. In fact, Christmas, the Christmas story really is that reminder. It is a reminder of God's grace given to the whole world, inviting us to move out of our fear into the light of God's goodness and grace. If that's a new idea for you, I would actually submit that you've probably sung about it before. Do you remember the beautiful little carol? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Have you sung it before? Then you've sung these words. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's the essence of the story we'll tell one week from today. The hopes and fears of all the years. Everything you bring to that moment will be met by the spirit of the gracious God who loves us and invites us to live in the light. And those words could just as easily have been the words 
of the prophet Isaiah, here in chapter 61, in fact, an unknown preacher writing two or three hundred years after the actual prophet Isaiah writes in his name and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set free the prisoner, to unbind the oppressed and the brokenhearted. It's a powerful word, a beautiful one, one that begins in hope and ends in the final stanza, especially in verse 10, in joy. The, the, the reading you heard earlier says, I will greatly rejoice. That's a good translation, but in the Hebrew, it's, it's in the imperative, and it's also almost supposed to be spoken over and over again. I've experienced joy, 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 joy in the salvation that God brings. That the prophet is just, is just full of himself and the amazing new life that he's experiencing. I think that, that the, the name of this one is intentionally unknown. Because these words are actually a job description for the church or the synagogue. They are a mission statement for how we're to live and behave and be in the world. They're a job description not only for, for the church, but also for Jim and Deb and Kate and David and Ron and I. And in fact, it's a job description for anyone who dares to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who takes the teachings of this one we call Lord seriously. And that's why I call this this text, the gospel according to Isaiah. It's a, it's a word about bringing the whole world to a place where justice is real for everyone, to bring the whole world to a place where everyone has enough food to eat, where everyone has a roof over their head where they feel safe and at home, where everyone is cared for and their health is strong and, and whole. This word is an inclusive word given to the world. This is what God expects. This is what God calls us as a congregation to do in this one life that we live and share. And in fact, our lives right now are what matters most to God more than anything else, the lives of our world. You know, there's, there's, there's a, a word that I want to take back. I, I want to take it back from the way it's being used, especially the last 50 or 60 words, years. It's the word evangelism. Do you know that word? Evangelism. It's kind of been used by some congregations and some churches as a way of saying, oh, you better come in and join us because if you don't, you're going to burn forever. I'm here to proclaim that that is absolutely wrong. The word evangelism is not about heaven. It's not about how to get into heaven or how to avoid hell or some other mother mythological place. No. The word evangelism comes from a Greek word, euangelizomai. It's right there in Luke chapter 2. In the beginning of the Christmas story, it's the angel when he says, I, behold, I bring you good tidings. In the Greek, it's that word, euangelizomai, which we transliterate into evangelism. It means, I bring you good news, good tidings. It's a word that was used in the, Greek, in the Greek military by the messenger who would run back from the battle to where the generals were or to where the king was and proclaim to him, euangelizomai, good tidings, good news. The victory is won. We no longer have to be afraid. That's what the angel is saying. That's what the church is called to say to the world. We have good news. You no longer have to be afraid because God's love, God's grace, God's goodness and forgiveness are given to everyone. You see, the point of our faith is not about proving the Christian religion is the right one over all the others. The, the point of our faith is the one that we name Jesus, the one in whom God was most fully alive. And when his earliest followers and the earliest members of the church experienced him and saw him, they said, he is so alive with the Spirit, this must be the Son of God. That's the promise of the good news. When we receive the Spirit of God, when we let that grace enfold us and enlighten us, 
we become, we become as though we are with God. It's an experience of grace and hope that God wants us to find. The problem is this can be frightening because sometimes when grace is there, if grace is real, if grace is speaking to us, then that means that that grace is going to illuminate some part of our souls and our practices and our, ourselves that are less than attractive. Maybe those mistakes, maybe it's some old guilt that just won't go away. Perhaps it's something you said yesterday to one you love. What grace does is not whitewash it, but bring it into attention so it can be named and forgiven and we can move forward in faith. But it's frightening to do that. The great Southern writer Flannery O'Connor wrote, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us And change is painful. She's so right. Change is painful. The healing that is sometimes necessary can hurt as much as the wound itself. Several years ago, I was playing in a a church uh, basketball league game. We were were playing against the Firefighters for Christ. Yeah, that's what they were called. They were the dirtiest team in the league, by the way. (laughs) I was playing point guard, and I was bringing the ball up court, and I got tripped by one of those firefighters from behind, and my left foot hit the court, and my knee bowed out, and I heard that pop in my head, and I knew I just tore my ACL, the anterior cruciate ligament. Two weeks later, I went into surgery. And you know what had to happen in order for that that ligament to be repaired? The surgeon had to cut through healthy flesh and muscle, even cut a piece of bone that was fine in order to, make, to take it and make something new, to make a new ACL for me. In order for the healing to begin, the pain had to be acknowledged. This is the kind of thing Jesus preached all the time. In fact, maybe you remember, if you heard, as you heard Deb doing the reading this morning from Isaiah 61, that Jesus quoted those words in his very first sermon in Luke chapter 4. He gathers there with the synagogue. He reads the text. Today, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captives, to bind the brokenhearted. And then as was in their practice, he sat down and the congregation remained standing. And you can just feel the little murmurs around. Isn't he a good reader? That's Joseph and Mary's son. He does so well these days. What a nice boy he is. He's grown up to be a nice young man. And he says out loud, today this word has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you can, you can still hear the murmuring in the crowd. Oh, that's so nice. He's acknowledging he's going to be a rabbi. I heard he got A pluses. He's a good student, a good boy. But then Jesus gets into the sermon and he makes it clear. You want to understand what Isaiah's word was directing us to do? It's to welcome the stranger, to welcome the outsider, the one different from us. He even dares to say out loud in the sermon, you can read it in Luke 4, that our enemies to the north are being blessed by God. Our enemies in that other religion that we hate, they're being blessed by God. Now take a moment and fill in the blanks for yourself. What Jesus wants, what God wants us to know is that those you're afraid of the most may be blessed by God. What Jesus wanted them to understand was this love of God is for everyone, not just us, not just the people who think like us, but for everyone. God loves them too, and God's blessing will go to all. The fuel that empowers this theological understanding is the very grace of God. This grace declares a good word for all. But here's the lesson. If we want to change the world, 
if we want to share this good news, if we want people to hear it and receive it, then we're going to have to be gracious. We're going to have to be gracious to the stranger on the street, our neighbor next door, our family and friends. We even need to be gracious at church, even to the person you're sitting next to right now. We need to be gracious in, well, let's just say it aloud, in board meetings, in council meetings, in Bible studies, in conversations in the parking lot, in all the places where we encounter each other. Our grace and our graciousness begin here. And if we can't practice it here, it doesn't matter what we say out there. This is the challenge. This is the call. I know it sounds like a simple idea, and it is. It's the practice that is hard. But there's hope, though. We, we get prayer requests here every week, and all of us then receive a, uh, an email from Paula who wants us to know about all the different uh, prayer requests that have come. And I like to read them on Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning when the world is quiet and most all folks are asleep. We got one last week from a little girl. She wrote, I wish we would all be kind to each other. I wish we would all be kind. Think of the universal implication of that word. If right now, if you right now could be kind to the ones in your home, to the ones you encounter, whether stranger or friend, to the ones you find at church, wherever you go, think of what would happen if the world, if this, if this simple prayer request could come true. Think of the change we would find. Isaiah is asking the same kind of question. He's dreaming of a world where there's no more, no more oppression, where everyone, where everyone has food to eat, healthy bodies, a home, a place to call home. I got to tell you, I saw it a little bit last week. It's a week ago yesterday. Julie and I were, were shopping out at Easton. You, you've been to Easton, right? To the mall over there on the east side of town. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, outdoor shopping center. We got there about three or four in the afternoon. Darkness was starting to fall. So there was also this light snowfall that was just absolutely perfect. Just beautiful. The temperature wasn't too cold, cold enough, but not too cold. Everyone was bundled up warm. We were walking around all over, just, just having a marvelous time. The lights twinkling in the trees. It, it looked exactly the way Christmas should look, I guess. Julie was in about her 17th store when I stopped to take a break. And I walked out into the, the courtyard near Brio. You know where the Brio restaurant is? And there's that beautiful tree, and there's a life-size manger scene right there. And I just stood there for a moment in the snowfall and watched the people walking by. And it struck me. This is what Isaiah described. There were white and black, Hispanic and Middle Easterner. People were being polite and kind. I saw someone who was taking some photos bump into somebody else, and she just turned around and said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he said, no, it's fine. Please, you go first. It was just like, it was a little slice of the way the world ought to be. Uh, later that night, we went into Macy's. We had a list for our boys. We were down to our last couple of items, and we showed the, the salesperson there, here's what we'd like to find. And they didn't have the particular brand that we wanted. And, and I said, well, is there another similar brand that was like this? And she said, you know what? I know that Nordstrom carries this specific item. Why don't you walk on over to Nordstrom and find it there? It's a little bit unusual. I thought, okay, fine, we'll go to Nordstrom. So we walked over to Nordstrom and found a saleswoman there. She said, oh, I know exactly where that is. Come on over here, please. Here it is right here. We said, great. We'll take two of those, one for each of our boys. And she said, well, since you were sent over here by Macy's, I'm going to give you the Macy's sale price. 
And I said, I've seen this movie. <laughs> it was a miracle on Easton Street. <laughs> Holy cow. And isn't that it? Isn't that it? Isn't that the world that Isaiah and Jesus and every person of faith has dreamed of seeing since the beginning of time? It's what the brilliant African-American preacher and poet Howard Thurman would say is the work of Christmas. To be kind and gracious, polite and helpful. That's what salvation means. Salvation's not, avoiding, not about avoiding some hot place. No, salvation is about having a life now that is filled with goodness and joy, peace and, and hope. Sometimes, though, that salvation is so very hard to find. The world seems to break us down. Sometimes we're blinded by, by life's pain itself. You know what I'm talking about. The addiction barely hid. The domestic violence that seems too real, the depression that's denied, the past guilt that's hidden away deep in our soul. It makes it almost impossible to receive this new life, to open this gift. Maybe forgiving ourselves is the place where the work of tr Christmas truly begins. I read not too long ago a story about a woman in her late 30s, who was dying, actively dying, due to complications with HIV AIDS. Her priest came to see her. He sat down next to the bed in the hospital where she was. She said, Father, I'm so glad to see you, but I just, I need to confess, I've lived such a horrible life. I've made so many mistakes. I've, my sins are too great to count. I just don't... I, I don't know what to say. I just wanted you to know that. And, and, and the priest looked at her and said, my dear, don't you know that God's grace and forgiveness is given to all? Can you believe it? Can you receive it? Can you welcome it? Please, my, my friend, please. And she shakes her head. She says, no, I'm too far gone. I'm, no, I can't believe it. I, I, I can't. I won't. I just can't. The priest was wise. He looked across the bed over her nightstand. There was, a, there was a photograph, a framed photograph of a beautiful young girl, 11, maybe 12 years old. He said to the woman, who is she in the photo? She smiled. She brightened. She said, that's the most beautiful thing in my life. That's my daughter. She's 12. I love her so much. She is the singular joy that I have. I, I just can't imagine. I can't imagine her not being in this world. The world is better because of her. The priest then looked at the, at the mother and said, if she stumbled, if she made a mistake, if she committed an, a sin, but still came home to you, would you open your arms and receive her, would you? And the mother now, barely in a whisper, able to hear, said, yes, yes, oh, Father, yes. And then, sounding like Jesus, he said, I want you to know that on God's nightstand, there's a photo of you.
The promise of the angels in the sky, the promise of the babe in the manger, the promise of the ancient prophet Isaiah has already been proclaimed in the words of that carol. The hopes and fears of all of our years will be met in the one whose arms are open wide, welcoming us to the place named love. Amen.